while you still have your song books with you, uh, the song of invitation is going to be number, if I pick it, I sing it, 972, 972. A couple things I want to make you aware of before we delve into the text and into the story where we're looking at chapter 17, there's some exciting things uh, taking place around here, uh, specifically for the Crumb household, things are are really uh, moving and shaking, a lot of excitement going on, uh, not the least of which uh, my daughter, uh, youngest Gracie, you know her because she runs up and down the aisles, um, she got sick and, and the doctor put her on some medication uh, and, and she's on steroids right now. Uh, and so for those of you, if you see a child climbing on the ceiling... Uh, it's ours, and I apologize for that. But what we're really excited about is the fact that we have some very special guests here uh, this morning. Uh, uh, Hobbs and Taylor Street in particular has been a wonderful, wonderful world for us. And we have dear friends, and we love being here. We left a, a world of, of close friends and dear people, and these worlds have collided this morning as Gil and Gaynell Cherry, our dear friends, mentors of ours, uh, have come to, to join us, uh, and they want to know uh, why I keep saying good things about Taylor Street. So they, they've come to, to check you out, so please make them feel welcome. If there's anything good that I've done over the last two years, uh, they deserve most of the credit for that. So I'm, I'm especially thankful that we're here together. But it's just not them being here. What's really special is that we have actually called Jesus into our presence this morning. And that's something to be really, really excited about. A few more things we have going on. For those of you who have wandered off into the recesses of the southwest quadrant, that hall area, it is under construction. Uh, and there's a reason why we're doing that. We knocked some huge holes into a wall on purpose. Uh, and the reason being is we're transforming one of those rooms to have a safe place for our first through fifth graders to go in between classes before and after. Uh, we just want to give them a place where they can come. What we're saying is our children are important. And what we're saying to families is we honor you as parents and we want to have a place for you to go. We have a, a place for our little kids. We have a place for our big kids, our teens downstairs. But our first through fifth graders have been wandering through the halls. And I want you to know that I don't think Cain's first sin was killing his brother Abel. I think his first sin was probably running through the church halls. Uh, and so that's the other big benefit to that is if we can kind of quarantine our kids to that back corner, we're hoping that it'll make it just a little safer place uh, for, uh, for you as you go in through the halls. Of course, if you ever see a crumb running down the hall, uh, grab them by the ear and, and, and give them a good whooping. Uh, and maybe that'll help a little bit too. One more thing I do want you to know, we've been talking about this a lot, but starting this morning, right after services, as we break for classes, there's a special class that is the five love languages of teenagers. It's going to be downstairs. It's going to be uh, facilitated by Lance Havens. And so we want to encourage you, if you have a teen, know a teen, been a teen, uh, or any of those, uh, please consider joining that class. Uh, of course, we'll still have our class upstairs. We want to encourage you to do that. Uh, let's go ahead, if you would, bow with me in a word of prayer. Father God, we are thankful that, that you have um, uh, continued to show your love and your mercy and your kindness 
kindness to us. And so, Lord, I pray that um, that will motivate us, that that will transform us, that that will set a fire in our hearts uh, and in our lives so that we may go out and reach people uh, who are hurting. Lord, I I just pray that uh, as we continue to do your will, uh, we keep our eyes open and our ears attentive to your words that you have for us. Lord, as, as we look at the words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Lord, I just I pray we take those words to heart, not only as a nation and as a church, but as individuals. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for who you are. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You know, sometimes you have those, those stories that are a little embarrassing, ones that you would just rather not other people know about. Well, I have lots and lots of those. I mean, I have a whole filing system that I've hidden away in my mind of things that, oh, things I shouldn't say. But for some reason, they always seem to make really good stories, opportunities for us to laugh, well, mainly at me. And so this morning, I want to pull another one out of the file, but this one's recent. It barely made it into the filing cabinet of my mind, because it just happened several weeks ago. My wife and I and the kids had just gotten through with class on Sunday morning, and we do what we do every Sunday morning after class. We deliberate as to where we're going to eat. That's always a big deal. That's why you will see us out in the car with it running. We're trying to figure out where we're going to go and who gets to decide this week. And if it's Lily, it's always McDonald's. And so we try to skip her every few times. Oh, you got it last week. I'm sorry. But this particular Sunday, several weeks back, we had already decided what we wanted to do, and we were pulling out, and we were heading off on our way. We got out on the main street on Turner, and we're going along, and I go to give it the gas, and I, I hit the gas, and the car goes, <coughs> and I want you to know it wasn't my car. It was my wife's car. You see, what had happened is several weeks prior, this little light came on the dash of her car that says, low fuel. That's what it said. In English, it said that it's a bright light. In fact, when you first turn on the car, it flashes. And every once in a while, it'll ding. She has a little countdown that says, you have 40 miles left. 30 miles left. When it gets down below 25, it just says, you're pressing your luck. Get gas. Well, she didn't listen. So when the cough of the car started to cause it to slow down, I looked over at her. And I said, as Adam said when he was talking to God, woman, you deceived me. And so we coast and barely make it into a parking lot. And the way that the parking lot was, it was a little alley and we had to go around the back. It just, it looked shady all the way around. And the whole time, I'm biting my lips, trying to say nothing. Because I know she's going to come back with, well, you've run out of gas more times than I have. (laughs) And she looks at me, just as Eve was speaking to God and said, it's not my fault. You're the one driving. I missed the warning sign. I should have known better. It was there. It's not like we didn't see it. We heard the ding. We saw the light. But we, 
We were paying attention to something else. We were looking forward to food. We wanted to eat. We didn't want to think about stopping and getting gas. Which, by the way, I can't remember the specific Sunday that it was, but I can tell you what I do remember about the Sunday. It was the Sunday that snow was on the ground. Ice was everywhere. And so we were still a good mile, cold, icy mile uphill towards my house. When I closed the door and started walking that way, I called uh, Rusty because Rusty Taylor uh, and Judy, we had just seen them in the parking lot and said, we're, you know, have a good day, we're going. And I called him and he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm walking. He says, why are you walking? I said, because my wife deceived me. <laughs> And, and he says, I'll come and get you. But between his navigator and his GPS and me wandering around, it took a little while for them to locate me. And the whole time I'm wondering, how could she do this? Just look at the dash. About a hundred years prior, there were some similar warning signs to a man who was so excited to have gotten this prestigious job working on this rather large cruise ship in which he was to take the messages sent from other places, decode them, and give them to the captain. And in turn, he would also take messages that were given by the captain and other passengers upon this boat. And he would send out these messages to people all across the world. And he was so excited about this job and wanting to do it right. But he was just slammed with all the messages from the passengers who were on that boat who wanted to send something home to mom and dad and the folks. And several times while he's trying to tap out these messages to send to other people, talking about what a great time they're having on the ship, he missed a few crucial warnings. Watch out ahead. There's this large field of ice directly in front of you. He put it aside and kept tapping these messages out, so proud that he knew that he could get all these messages done before they reached port. Again, he got another message, warning, and finally he tapped out these words, shut up, shut up, I'm busy. That wouldn't be the last message that he would tap out, but it would be the last time that that ship the Titanic would float. You see, there were warning signs that he just missed. There were warning signs that he, he should have seen. He should have stopped everything that he was doing. But he was so focused on the thing that he wanted to do that he really forgot. Now, we don't have to pretend that they're passengers on the Titanic. But as we have looked at Israel over the last several months, we have seen warning sign after warning sign after warning sign happen. Specifically in the last few weeks, we have seen that these warning signs have approached. Remember we talked about the ten northern tribes of Israel carried off into captivity by Assyria. 
God sends a prophet named Isaiah who's going to specifically prophesy to the fact that there is going to be a group of people from the north called the Babylonians and they are going to do the same thing to Judah as has happened to Israel. Hezekiah gets the message. Reform takes place. And something I don't get. And something that scares me as a minister. How could Hezekiah try so hard to save the country that he forgot to raise his son? You see, after Hezekiah died was Manasseh. And Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the good that had been done was immediately negated by what Manasseh did. Followed by Amnon. Josiah was a bright light. A young boy who came in and he tore down but the Asherah poles and the temples. And he was ready to give his total allegiance to God. I love the story of Josiah. The, the story just didn't, didn't cover as much about Josiah's that I would have loved to. But he gets the book of the law and they read it. And it's just so exciting. And it seems like everything is going well. But then all of a sudden, Josiah dies. And it goes downhill again. The warning signs seemingly evident to those who are reading it. In black and white years later. But those who were living it somehow they didn't understand. And Jehoiachin and Jehoiakim and a host of other leaders just missed out on it. They should have known. They should have paid attention. But instead they were focused on what they wanted. You would think that eventually they would get the message. But unfortunately for them it would take a kingdom to fall. Before they would ever realize what had just happened. I hope you have taken the time to read through chapter 17. Uh, it is nearly impossible uh, to get through in one sermon. Last week I did something that you will never ever see me do again. <laughs> you, you've probably seen a few crazy things happen in the two years that I've here. I've built things. I've thrown hammers. I've taken off ties, all sorts of stuff, but something I promise you'll never see again is a 14-minute sermon. <laughs> and this week, <laughs> you owe me. <laughs> and so it's going to be a little bit longer in this time. And let me tell you why. It is nearly impossible to try to cover the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel and the book of Lamentations in 25 minutes. But buckle up, we're going to do our best. Which, by the way, somebody want to tell me what the longest book in the Bible is? I knew I heard somebody whisper Psalms, because it's a trick question. Psalms has the most chapters, the most words, is Jeremiah. Unfortunately, it's not just the quantity of the words that are so impactful. It's the quality. It's the words... Of Jeremiah, this weeping prophet who continually prophesies doom and disaster over and over again, sending out warning signs. They were heard, but but they didn't didn't just last. You know about Manasseh, don't you? He finds himself into a lot of trouble, and I don't know how this happens, but Assyria comes and they take him off. In
captivity, and they drag him away with a hook through the nose. And that got his attention enough to call upon the Lord. The Lord heard his prayer, brought him back, but the warning was unheeded by his children. And once again, we have these warning signs over and over again. But they missed it. I want to ask you this question. Have you ever felt the presence of God? Maybe, maybe not so much like a, a feeling, a tactile feeling, but have you ever just known and just knew that, that God was right there with you? Sometimes it's hard to see when you're in the midst of that. Later on you can look back and say, you know, that's when God was with me. Like the footprints in the sand, that's, that's when God carried me. When do you feel the presence of God? When, when, do you, when do you know He's there? When are you listening? For Judah, they just couldn't hear. You know, over and over again, the Israelites... Went through a time of prosperity. This, the manna was, was coming down. It was, it was flowing. Everything was great. And then, well, something else was wrong. And they hit bottom and they realized that they needed God. And then they came back up again. And then they would complain and it would go up. And uh, we have judges, but they're not good enough. We have kings, and they're not good enough. We have prophets. And it goes up and down and up and down. They had reached a point in their lives where even after hitting rock bottom, they still weren't looking for God. Judah gets carried off into captivity. Partially, the only city left, main one, is Jerusalem. All the intelligent and the the rich and the prominent people are carried off. It's only this small remnant that remains in Jerusalem. And still, in the city of God, there's no crying out for the Lord. And they miss out. I wonder when you hear God's calling in your life. Is it when things are going great? Or is it when things are terrible? When are we most tuned in to hearing the voice of God? We have Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and I'll try to break it down as simply as I can. Uh, Jeremiah, for a time, he remained uh, with Jerusalem, and he was the one who was prophesying to them. And he prophesied, of course, over and over again. You know, there's doom, there's destruction, you've got to change your ways. And, and we get this little God-slash-Abraham uh, dialogue that takes place, except now instead of Abraham, it's Jeremiah, in which God says, Listen, you find somebody faithful in Jerusalem, and I'll, I'll hit the brakes. But you've got to find somebody who's righteous. And then we have Ezekiel, who has been carried off into captivity. He is now in Babylon. And so his message is a little different. He's prophesying in a little different way. But as we have Jeremiah who's saying the end is near, we have Ezekiel who says, God won't give up on us. 
And I wonder, I wonder why God was so hesitant. Why was he so slow to act? Not only when he sent Israel off into captivity, but later Judah. And now in 586 in Jerusalem, why why did he take so long? And I think of the parent, me in particular, who has said to my child, if you do that one more time, I'm going to dot, dot, dot. If you do this one more time, I'm going to dot, dot, dot. And, and, and they do different. All kids are different. Lily, she would look at you while she does it again. Like, hey, watch this. I'm going to do it again. And then, out of your mouth, you say, now if you do that again, then I'm going to... Maybe not the best parenting skills on my part, but I will say this. I don't want to participate in their heartache. I don't want to be the one that has to bring it. But you know, if I'm going to prevent big heartaches later on, then you have to be prepared to offer little heartaches along the way. And the reason why a parent would do that is because a parent loves them. And the reason why God would choose to relent so many times was because the love that he had for his people. But here's the deal. They didn't listen. Over and over again, they chose other gods. And God said, this is what's going to happen. Do you want to worship like the Babylonians do? You really want that? I'll give it to you. Chris Seedman, a preacher uh, in the Metroplex, he shares this story about his friend Shane, who Shane, at 11 years old, he and his older brother, who was 15 at the time, they decided that they were going to go out behind the shed and they were going to smoke a cigarette. And so they sneak out behind the shed and they start puffing away. But before long, Dad sees the smoke coming from behind the shed. He goes around to see his two boys puffing on those cigarettes. And he says, oh, I didn't know that we were smoking today. I wish I would have known. Hey, you guys come with me. So he loaded up Shane, the 11-year-old, and his other brother who was 15. They got in the car and they went down to the convenience store. And he says, hey, guess what? Since it's smoke day, I want to be a part of this. And they get out of the car and they go inside. And he says, hey, why don't, why don't you guys pick out a pack of cigarettes? And Shane says, well, you know what? I, those, those ones that say cool, they look pretty neat. That's menthol. That's what I want. I'll be cool doing that. So he grabs his pack of cigarettes. The older brother, having conjuring up visions of a man in a cowboy hat on a horse, he says, I want the Marlboros. And dad pays for them. And they go back and he says, this time you don't have to go out to the shed. This time we can just be on the porch. We'll do it right here. So he opens it up. He gets strikes a match and they both light it. And they start puffing away. And dad says, that's good. 
They get to the end. He says, oh, don't stop there. Why don't you try another one? He hands them another one. Four cigarettes and 15 minutes later, the boys have changed several shades of green. And he says, I tell you what, if you're tired of smoking, here's what I'll do. You don't have to get another cigarette. I just want you to go run around the oak tree and come back. They get right about to the oak tree and decide that whatever they ate the last two days wasn't going to stay with them anymore. And they came back. And to this day, if you ask Shane, as Chris Seedman would say, he says, I will never ever touch a cigarette again in my life. I smell that and all I can think of is staring at the root of that tree while I'm getting sick. You see, God says, you want to worship These other gods? You want to be great like this Babylonian culture? Okay, I'll give it to you. You don't have to bring it here. I'll take you there. And he sends them off into captivity. And there they are. And all the great things they thought they had, all of a sudden they lost. And for 70 years, Judah is in captivity. Israel has been in for so long that that they now just disappear. Judah is all that's left. But then we read from the prophet Ezekiel. Who says this. I'm a God of faithfulness. I'm a God of love. And I will bring you back. That's what he says. That he's going to bring you back. But man, the pain they had to go through. I've told you several stories about my grand-grand. I want to share one about my granddad, uh, who is my mom's dad. My granddad grew up in the Depression. What I knew about him was he was a man of few words. We prayed at the dinner table every time, and he he would hoard ketchup and coca-cola in the back closet that's what i remembered about him but here's one time i really can't forget was the time that we went out into his backyard because we were going to uh, prune which i didn't know what that meant his pear tree he lived in Fort Worth, uh, and he was surrounded uh, by concrete all around. So the pride that he had on his block was the fact that he had the best pear tree. And so he says, come out, Doug, uh, we're going to prune this tree. And so I have no idea what pruning means. I'm not really sure. But we go out there, and he grabs a saw, and I'm thinking, I like pruning already. But then I watched him and I'm thinking that we may take off a a few little leaves here and there, maybe a a few small twigs, but he attacks this branch and sawdust is flying, my mouth is dropped and I can't believe I misunderstood what pruning was. Apparently we're cutting down the tree now. And I watched him completely destroy the pear tree. And I thought... Granddad has lost it. Should I go get grand-grand? What do we need to do here? By the time the dust settles, that was the gnarliest, ugliest tree that I had ever seen. He had just torn that thing to pieces. And I got the fun part of dragging the branches around to the front. 
And then all of a sudden, I didn't like pruning anymore. But I thought my granddad had just lost it. Well, you know what happens. We go out the next spring, and branches have grown, and are growing at such a rapid rate, that before long, when it's time for these pears uh, to start budding and growing, it is the largest crop I had ever seen come off of that tree. My grand-grand couldn't preserve enough pears. There were not enough jars in Tarrant County to hold the pears that they pulled off that tree. They would beg people to stop as they're driving by the road. Please take some pears. The pears were so, there were so many of them that it would weight down the branches. And if you didn't pull the pears off, the branches were likely to snap. It was that big of a harvest. I couldn't believe that something had, that had been torn down to the very bottom came up and produced so much fruit. And all of a sudden I saw a life lesson come out of that pear tree and my granddad sawing. You see, if you're not careful, you can pay more attention to the branches than you do to the fruit. You can spend more time wanting to grow wood than you would if you were just focused on the fruit. You see, God didn't call us to look good. He called us to produce fruit. And what that means is that there has to be some pruning. You have to get away the useless wood and focus on what you were created to do. I wish I could answer what that is for each one of you. But I don't know. I hope you do. I hope you take a spiritual inventory of your life and you assess the talents that God has given you. Because God hasn't called you to look good or to just show up on Sunday. He called you to produce fruit. And somewhere out there is somebody who so desperately needs the Word of God and His love in their life. And they need to be able to pick some fruit off the tree. God has called you to be that tree for somebody who needs fruit. My question to you this morning is, are you bearing fruit? Last Sunday, I just wanted to ask one question. I wanted it to, to hit home with you and you would walk away asking yourself the question, what can I do in my life so that God is my Redeemer, my Savior, and the Mighty One? What do I need to do? And we expanded on that in our, our life groups on Sunday night as we met. I started asking the question, what does that really mean? And I started saying some things that I've really felt uncomfortable thinking about and I felt horrible about verbalizing. But I asked this question. I said, what if, 
What if God could be most glorified and He could be seen as your Savior, your Redeemer, and the Mighty One if He took away this great illness that you have in your life? Could you say praise God? Can you say praise God? What if God says, in order for me to be glorified in your life, I need to give you the winning lottery ticket. Can you say praise God? What if God says, in order for me to be glorified in your life, it means that what I'm going to have to do is, I'm going to have to give you a promotion and a raise. Can you say praise God? What if God says, in order for me to be glorified in your life, you got to have this perfect family and this athletic child, and they all have to make good grades, and you live in this nice house with a white picket fence. Can you say praise God? Praise God. What if God says that in order for me to be glorified, I'm going to give you a disease? What if I'm going to take away your house? What if, what if you got to lose your job? Can we praise God? You see, being pruned by God does not mean that He's given up on us. It doesn't mean that He doesn't love us. It means that He's preparing us for a fruit. Because in the end, what happens on this earth, it's not going to be around. God has called us to something greater. We read about the lower story. The upper story is God will be glorified. And there's two ways we can do it. We can do it here on earth, or when He comes down at the resurrection, we will fall on our knees. Every single person who has ever lived will fall on their knees and give glory to God. I don't want that to be the first time that my knees hit the ground before my Lord, my Savior, my Redeemer, and the Mighty One. I know that God has called each one of you to something great. Not next week, not next month, today. There is some way in which He is ready to allow fruit to come off your branches so that He can be glorified. And my question is, are you thinking about how nice your branches look? Are you really focused on giving His love, His forgiveness, and His Word in this hungry world? That's what God has called us to do here in Hobbes and throughout the world is to reach out. And so as you experience difficult times, I don't want to minimize the pain, but I do want you to know this. God is able to do mighty things even when the saw is out. And His Holy Spirit will give you strength for that opportunity, not only to survive, not only to thrive on your own, but it gives an opportunity for God to be glorified as people watch you lean on Jesus, who is your Redeemer, your Savior, and your Mighty One. May we live this week as people who share God's fruit in this world. It's been a long time since we talked about this, but I wanted to serve as a reminder to you when we have a song in a moment, we call it an invitation song. It's a song in which we invite you to come forward if you'd like to consider being a part of our family, if you want to confess sins, if you want to offer a praise or ask for a prayer, we want to encourage you to do that. If it's something that it makes you a little nervous to come up front, you feel more uh, comfortable going backwards, back there we have a family room, we'll have an elder who's back there confidentially you can visit with them you can ask for prayers they will pray over you if there's any way that we can help you this morning as we sing this song of encouragement we ask that you'll come as we stand and sing